Hi there, and thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition. We're a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Today's little journey into tiny science starts with a rivalry. Now, Hudson Alpha is located in Alabama, so we know a thing or two about rivalry. The Iron Bowl divides the state right down the middle. The University of Alabama and Auburn University clash once a year in football, and the whole state comes to an absolute stop. Everyone picks a side, and then people fight like, well, you might say they fight like cats and dogs. And that's where we come in. Last week we talked about dogs, so this week it's time to talk cats. To help us out, we've got our expert in animal genetics, Dr. Greg Barsh. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Barsh. Happy to be back, David. I feel like it's a pretty clear divide that almost everyone I talk to is either a dog person or a cat person. Do you consider yourself one of the two? No. I am now. I will say that uh, I love cats and dogs, but in our family, we have had just dogs for many, many years. But that's largely because my kids—they really love dogs—and uh, my wife uh, was not a huge cat lover. But I think I've talked her into it, and so one of these days, I think we're going to get a cat. Okay. And, and what kind of cat do you want to get? I want a friendly cat. Uh, that's the deep sigh of a person who just thought a lot about what kind of cat they want to get. A friendly cat. How do you how do you accomplish that? Dogs, you know, you say, oh, well, you know, retrievers retrieve and herders herd and terriers dig. But it's harder to do that with cats, right? It's not like you can say, oh, Siamese cats are friendly or, or less friendly or smarter or not smarter than any other Persians say. And many cats, uh, people will say, oh, well, th- my cat is so friendly. In fact, some people say, my cat, it's just like a dog. Now, that, that's very judgmental, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, sure. You don't want to get into that, that, that the friendly is the dog trait, right? That the cat's simply mimicking, that the, the cat can be friendly on its own. So uh, cat diversity, uh, it, it's different than dog diversity, though. There's many more dog breeds than there are cat breeds. But beyond that, if you just think about dog breeds, there is this tremendous range of morphological diversity, not only behavioral diversity, but morphological diversity, differences in shapes and sizes. You know, big dogs, little dogs, dogs with, uh, you know, short little faces, dogs with really long noses, dogs with tails, dogs with really short tails, and you don't see that so much in cats. Uh, There there are uh, a few exceptions, but for the most part, the range of morphologic diversity or I should say the range of skeletal diversity, is much greater in dogs than it is in cats. Now, the reason I qualified that, the reason I said that uh, the the range of skeletal diversity is if you're talking about color diversity, I think actually the range of color diversity in cats is just as great, if not greater, than it is in dogs. Interesting. So explain a little bit about why that is, why the skeletal diversity is greater, but the color diversity is not for dogs versus cats. Well, you know, uh, I don't know that we really know the answer. Uh, it's, it's kind of speculative. And, and the reason is because all of this diversity is something that happened uh, during domestication, which is, you know, thousands, uh, sometimes perhaps tens of thousands of years old, probably older for dogs than it is for cats. And so we really don't know for sure what happened, you know, tens of thousands of years ago. But most people think 
that dogs were initially purpose-bred. They were bred for specific tasks uh, or bred and selected for specific tasks. And so that process of swimming, herding, retrieving, that's something that requires changes in morphology. Some people say that cats were tolerated. Uh, and the reason they were tolerated is because they kept mice out of barns, right? Uh, and so there was less of a sort of a purpose, purposeful breeding, and uh, uh, at least at, this, at the time of domestication. And so the diversity that occurs in cats has happened much, much later over the last several hundred years. Uh, and that's something that uh, uh, breeders have really focused on, uh, on color diversity rather than skeletal diversity for the most part. Gotcha. Okay. So then, uh, how does the cat family tree branch out? Is it one ancestor and then they get crossbred and crossbred and crossbred or does the family tree look different than the Well, it, de- tree it depends what you mean by cats, right? So uh, sometimes uh, when you say cat, you're talking about a house cat, a domestic cat. But other times when you talk about cat, you're thinking of, oh, a lion, a tiger, a leopard, and a jaguar. And it turns out that if you talk about cats that way, say the Felidae or the Felid family tree, it's much bigger than, say, the dog family tree uh, because... Uh, It turns out there's about 35 or so species of wild felids, sometimes called wild cats, of which the domestic cat is one, uh, and of which the leopard, jaguar, lion, tiger, ocelot, they're all others. Uh, And all of them are closely related with the last common ancestor about 10 million years ago. So how closely related are uh, jungle cats and house cats? Right. So, well, jungle cats are in the uh, domestic cat lineage. Uh, So they're uh, maybe four or five million years ago, last common ancestor. Uh, Some of the other wild cats, like the the Asian leopard cat or the serval, are more distantly related, uh, say, you know, six or seven million years ago. Uh, so, so that's pretty distant, as distant, say, as a human and a chimpanzee would be. Interesting. So when you're talking about breeding cats, uh, obviously now you breed cats that are different, uh, that look different than one another. But how do the wild types of cats figure into that picture? Right. So, you know, in the history of uh, derivation of dog breeds and cat breeds, there's this really unusual feature that is pretty unique to cat breeding. And that's the introduction of wild felids into domestic cats. And so over the last, and it's, it's, it's really been a relatively short period of time, I would say over the last 50 or 60 years, there have been systematic efforts by cat breeders to cross domestic cats, house cats, with their wild relatives. Uh, there's three or four uh, wild species of cats, like the serval, like the Asian leopard cat, like the jungle cat, that have been crossed with the domestic house cat to give rise to new breeds of now domestic cats, which in many cases are recognized by, say, the International Cat Association as now official breeds. But they're, and, and we call them domestic cats, but they're really not domestic cats. They're domestic cats with just a little bit of wild cat DNA from, you know, millions of years ago. 
Interesting. I think that you would meet plenty of people, maybe more dog people than cat people, that would say that uh, cats' personalities are a little more wild in nature, that they, they have that sort of ambivalence to human uh, interaction that maybe you don't find as often in dogs. Does that come from the breeding tree? Is that part of that process, that the wild cats get introduced more frequently into the breeding pool? No. In, in, in fact, what happens is, you know, wild cats are wild. You know, you see these, you know, big cats and we often have this very sort of, you know, uh, human tendency to say, oh, you know, isn't that a cute cat? But they're, they're wild and, you know, dangerous, even the small ones. Uh, so no, in fact, what happens when you first cross, say, a Asian leopard cat with a uh, domestic cat, they're very difficult. They're just like the wild cats. And so what uh, the breeders have done is they've uh, backcrossed the offspring for several generations to the domestic cat every time selecting for a cat that was friendly, behaved like a domestic cat that you could house train uh, and would, you know, tolerate and like to be petted, would tolerate humans, uh, but also one that had some of the uh, morphologic characteristics, the the color patterns that uh, evoked uh, the thought of a wild cat. So to create, say, a a new type, a new breed of domestic cat that looks like uh, a wild cat but behaves like uh, like a house cat, and that is indeed responsible for some of these very popular. Uh, breeds today, uh, as I said, which are not really domestic cats, or we call them domestic cats, but they're domestic cats with a little bit of wild DNA, and that's like the Bengal breed, the Chaucy breed, and the Savannah breed. Explain what you mean by back cross. What is a back cross? If you take a, a domestic cat and cross it with a wild cat, you get offspring. And sometimes we call those offspring, the geneticist calls those the F1 for filial one. That's the first filial generation. Uh, now, if you were to take those offspring and cross them together, cross the offspring together, you would have what's called the F2 or the filial two generation and so forth. Uh, but what people have done for these very popular breeds that have a little bit of wild DNA is they've taken the F1 and instead of crossing them uh, amongst themselves, they've crossed them back to domestic cats. Uh, and you do that for, say, three or four generations. And after three or four rounds of this back crossing to domestic cats, there's not a lot of wild cat DNA left. Uh, but most, and so most of the DNA that's, uh, that's left is originally from the domestic cat with a little bit of wildcat DNA. Got it. How do you get that first cross between a totally wild cat and a domestic cat? Is it, is it, uh, um, do you get a lot of scratch marks in that process? You know, I'm not sure because I've never seen that, but I understand that it's really difficult. Uh, and in some cases, people have used artificial insemination uh, to do that. And so that's another characteristic of these wild-derived breeds is that generally there's only a handful, say five or ten, of the very initial crosses. So if you look, for example, at Bengal cats, and there's probably more than 100,000 Bengal cats that are alive and, you know, living in, in as, as pets today. But those 100,000 Bengal cats, they all come from a handful of original Asian leopard cats. How do you study them? Uh, what are you looking for in those cats? Right. So our original motivation for studying Bengal cats 
was to understand where some of these color, where, where the diversity in colors and color patterns that you see in Bengal cats come from. And I should say that all this work was done by a, a really talented senior scientist in our group, Chris Kalin. Uh, and but but uh, but Chris couldn't do it by himself. Chris has worked really closely with breeders in the community. And for anyone that's out there that's interested in knowing more about Bengal cats, I would encourage you to look at the work of Anthony Hutcherson of jungletrackscats.com, who is just a wonderful collaborator and friend and uh, is uh, one of the, I would say, world's foremost experts on all things related to Bengal cats. And what and Chris and Anthony, it's really been a partnership between them and other Bengal breeders. And what they've done is they've gone to cat shows, Bengal cat shows, and Chris has taken little bits of DNA from lots of Bengal cats. And the way he's done this is with cheek swabs. So Chris will go to a cat show and Anthony will introduce him to lots of the cat breeders, and Chris will say, would you mind if I took a photo of your cat and a little bit of their DNA with a cheek swab? Uh, And cat breeders are really motivated to do that. In particular, the Bengal breeders like it because Chris says, well, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this is to understand what parts of the DNA in the Bengal cat actually come from the Asian leopard cat. And so Chris has been able to figure out, you know, in any particular Bengal cat, what parts are domestic and what parts are of Asian leopard cat origin, and then give that information back to to the Bengal breeders. Does Chris have really thick gloves, or does he just not mind getting scratched? How does that work? <laughs> no, these are these are uh, these are Bengal cats. These are pets. It's really easy to get a cheek swab from a domestic cat. All right, you know different cats than I do, though, because I, I would not want to have to put my fingers around there. All right, so he's got the cheek swabs. He does the DNA sequencing, and then what is he looking to learn? Um, you know, obviously the closeness to the prior cats, but uh, what what else are you hoping to find out from that? Well, it turns out that when you look at a lot of cats, and now Chris has collected almost 2,000 DNA samples from Bengal cats, that you can ask, well, do all these Bengal cats share in common or have more frequently than one would expect by chance uh, regions from the uh, from the wild cat genome, from the Asian leopard cat genome? In fact, you could also ask, are there regions of the genome that have been selected for from the domestic cats? So, you know, just as uh, during cat domestication, there was selection for lots of different things or domestic dog, uh, during dog domestication, where there was selection for lots of different things, you can, if you have lots of DNA samples from lots of animals, you can ask during selection, are there regions of the genome that are overrepresented? Got it. And what have you found so far? Right. So it turns out that one of the most fascinating things is that there are a few regions of the wildcat genome that we find more frequently than expected in certain kinds of Bengal cats. And a good example is a type of Bengal cat that's called charcoal. So charcoal Bengal cats are a little bit darker. Uh, And it turns out that Chris was able to figure out that the reason is because 
these charcoal Bengal cats, they all have in common one specific region of the Bengal cat genome that makes them a little, of the Asian leopard cat genome, that makes them a little bit darker than they otherwise would be. Now, there's on the other side of that coin is that there's, in, in many Bengal cats, they have a region of the domestic cat genome that you see almost exclusively in Bengal cats and not in other domestic cats. So in other words, if you look across all domestic cats, all breeds, Bengals, Siamese, Persians, and ask, there turns out there's this one DNA sequence or a, a couple DNA sequence changes that you, that you find that are present at a very low frequency among almost uh, among most domestic cats, but that they're at very high frequency in Bengal cats. And that turns out to be responsible for a trait that affects not the hair color, but the hair appearance, uh, and that's called glitter. So it turns out that glitter, which is, which is present in many Bengal cats, not all, but many Bengal cats, is due to a region of the domestic cat genome that was selected for during Bengal breeding. Tell us uh, more about glitter, because uh, I think that everyone's got a really specific vision when you say glitter of the stuff that gets stuck in their carpet or won't wash off of their hands, but it means something a little bit different in cats. Tell, tell me about that. Right. So it was originally described as a sparkly appearance of the coat. Uh, now, I have to say that I have seen uh, pictures of glitter and non-glitter cats, and I have a hard time telling them apart. Uh, but Anthony Hutcherson, he can tell glitter from non-glitter, you know, with uh, in, in an instant. Uh, I've also been told uh, by Chris, who's actually gotten DNA samples from these cats, that if you feel uh, the coat of a glitter cat, that it feels uh, a little different. Uh, now, I, what does different mean? I'm not sure exactly, but you can tell the difference when you, when you pet the animal. It feels different for a glitter cat from a non-glitter cat. And so what do we know about the significance of the glitter? Well, the significance is that this is something that uh, the breeders have, uh, have selected for because they like the sparkly, the, the, the glittery appearance. Uh, it turns out that the DNA sequence change that causes glitter causes the gene that encodes a growth factor receptor, a specific growth factor receptor, to be expressed in the hair at lower levels than it otherwise would be. And when there's less of this growth factor receptor expressed in, in, during, during hair development, uh, the structure of the hair changes a little bit, and so it becomes a little bit more translucent, this sparkly, glittery appearance, and it also feels different. That desire to crossbreed our domestic cats with the wild cats to get the different color patterns uh, what do you think that says about the, the purpose of that breeding? Uh, what do you derive from that, that people are so interested in having their house pet mimic the wild type? I think some of it could be just this human, and I would say actually a wonderful human fascination with diversity, right? So if you think about what we enjoy, how, how we derive uh, pleasure and enrichment from our, from our lives. Think about going to the zoo. Isn't it fun to go to the zoo, right? And what do you like about the zoo? You like seeing the diversity of animals or go on a safari, the diversity that's out there. Uh, and so I, I would think that the motivation, I don't know for sure, I, and, and that's, I'll have to ask some of my uh, 
friends who uh, are actually engaged in this to see, you know, what was their motivation. But I, I would think that it would be this uh, appreciation and enjoyment of uh, diversity in nature. Again, thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition into why there are so many fewer kinds of cats than dogs. All this season, we'll tackle fascinating stories of morphology, the genetics that give life its incredible diversity. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama, and we've got a campus full of scientists doing public research right alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If you find our work worthwhile, just do us a small favor right now. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and tell someone that you heard this interesting little story about genetics. Help them find our podcast. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.